We don't just speak to directors, composers and producers on this show. Actors are welcome too. And in Killian Murphy, we not only have a man at the top of his game, but also a genuine enthusiast for the sonic arts. I'm Edith Bowman, and you're listening to Soundtracking, the podcast in which the leading lights of film and television discuss the music in their work. Killian has shown in a hugely diverse range of films from blockbusters Dunkirk and the Dark Knight trilogy to indie flicks like Disco Pigs and Breakfast on Pluto. He can currently be seen in BBC gangster epic Peaky Blinders back for a fourth season having garnered an enormous fan base and widespread critical acclaim. Now, if you haven't seen Peaky, one has to wonder what you've been doing with your time. In a nutshell, Killian stars as Tommy, the leader of the eponymous gang who are fighting for underworld supremacy in post-World War I Birmingham. Among the show's many delights is the use of contemporary music as a counterpoise to the narrative. From Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, whose track Martha's Dream is playing now, to PJ Harvey, Savages and the White Stripes. You'll hear examples of all of these artists throughout the conversation, starting with Mr Cave and his Red Right Hand, a track that has become synonymous with the show. Killian Murphy, welcome to Soundtracking. This is a real pleasure. Thank you. Because there's loads of places to start, but let's start with Peaky. Congratulations on the success of that so far, but this particular series as well is just... Talk about kind of getting out the traps for the first episode. Amazing. Yeah, well, I'm just (laughs) really happy that, you know, in series four, we're still managing to push it, you know, and to stretch ourselves. And it isn't the normal pattern, I think, for television shows to still be improving by series four this tend to dip or your plateau or whatever but it's the quality of the writing and the sort of focus and energy everyone has is that every year determination is to make it better yeah and from the off from that first episode and that theme tune mm. music is such a big part of that show and the characters as well because almost sometimes when something happens within a scene and then a piece of music comes in it almost can sometimes accentuate that emotion or yeah. that feeling that that character's having yeah I, I think so and I have to be honest I didn't think it was a great idea <laughs> like a genuine I wish I could have said it was that Otto's idea then it was Otto Bathurst yeah who directed the first three episodes and sort of set the look for the for the show and being such a music geek I was like oh man it's got to feel just too <laughs> self-conscious or too kind of it's too clever cool. yeah but you know and then but then when he put Nick Cave to it it just seemed to be you know meant for each other yeah take a little walk to the edge of town go across the track where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as a ship and crack where secrets lie in the board of fires and the humming wires yeah man you know you're never coming back across the square across the bridge past the mills past the stacks on a gathering storm comes a tall handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand do you know Nick Cave? I've never met Nick Cave I've been a long time fan yeah, me too. I would love to know because now, you know, when I hear that, I don't know if it's a kettlebell or whatever, it's yeah. that kind of, you know, that sound that you hear on the yeah. theme. And, you know, whenever I hear that now, I think of Peaky. And 
I would hope he'd be so thrilled about the connection with the music, but also what it's done for his music, I think, as well. I mean, I, I, I think Nick Cave would have been all right with Vicky Blinders. No, I know, but, but how big Peaky is and how it does sometimes introduce people to things well, that, that they true. would never have listened to. You know, I mean, my dad, for example, not a big Nick Cave fan until he started watching Peaky, and now he's like loves it and yeah. that's brilliant I love that about it so really healthy thing well that is a very good point actually it does <laughs> kind of open the door to discovering new artists and yeah. someone who's never heard of Nick Cave or PJ Harvey for that matter you know watches Peaky Blinders and is provoked to go and buy some Nick Cave or PJ Harvey albums and that's great you know for me it's always been I've said this on many occasions the idea that somewhere in the world you know Nick Cave or Jack White or Tom York, you know, sat down and watched an episode is enough for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It really makes yeah. me very, very excited. You'll see him in your nightmares, you'll see him in your dreams. He'll appear out of nowhere, but he ain't what he seems. You'll see him in your head on a TV screen. Hey, buddy, I'm wanting you to turn it off. Oh, he's a ghost, he's a god, he's a man, he's a guru. You're one microscopic cog in his catastrophic plan, designed and directed by his red right hand. We know that David Bowie was a big fan. Yeah. And that was wonderful that he then was very encouraging about his music being used as well which yeah. is wonderful to know that someone yeah. like that is a fan yeah it's incredibly humbling really is this sort of I suppose that's the emotion you feel yeah and and that record you know the last record Black Star yeah, yeah was there was just some tracks in that just were just perfect for what Tommy was going through at the time and like Bowie just had some <laughs> amazing sense that they would work those songs yeah he was so so generous and lovely about it I love the fact that there's the randomness as well of people like Snoop Dogg being big fans. I love that story about him inviting Stephen to his hotel room yeah. to talk Peaky. And what was it he said to him about? It reminded him of growing up in gang culture. And yeah, yeah, so in Los brilliant. Angeles. You know, yeah, so random. But the, the, that's that's the, the like the, I've been the most unusual places and Peaky Blinders fans have approached me. You know that mm. it seems to have this universality. You know, you never know what it is. Yeah, what makes it click with people. There's no one thing. Uh, and there's no set of formula, there's there's no algorithm, it just for some reason it connects with people. Look up here, I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen. I've got drama can't be stolen. Everybody knows me now Side of the show, 
And I wanted to ask whether that means that you get more involved in music, knowing how passionate you are about music, and is it something that you've been you've been involved in in terms of artists or even approaching people or anything like that? Well, yeah, I suppose in series um, two, I think it was, Colin McCarthy, the, the director, was very he was a huge. PJ Harvey fan yeah. and was really really keen to see if he could get some of the tracks and get her involved and I happen to be very good friends with Flood who's you know produced all I of her. I love Flood. Yeah he's one of my favourite people. <laughs> yeah me too. Terrible getting back to you on he's still got that old fashioned Nokia phone that he walks about with it's really like come on mate get up to date. He is he's brutal with technology <laughs> given that he's a sound engineer you. but um so he's, you know, he's produced um, Polly's records for years. Yeah. And so I said, well, look, I can ask Flood. And then Flood got in touch with Polly and then they all sat down and then she ended up giving a lot of her songs to the show and then writing some new stuff. And Flood sort of took some of their some of the earlier studio tracks and kind of messed with them and made them into something new that fitted the show. The version of Down by the Water is perfect. That was an example of you know people who wanted to be involved yeah. and, and saying yeah and and she did a version of Red Right Hand and it all came from people knowing each other but then a sort of a you know people being mutually admiring of other people's work so yeah. that's kind of how it came about and I suppose because I am such a groupie I tend to hang around <laughs> backstage at shows and you end up meeting people and you end up becoming friends with people in bands and and it's nice when you can say look what do you think about this yeah. Savages are a big band, but they're a band yeah. that are used in this new series, and I love that you've used them as a band because I think that there's a really lovely correlation between the story and the characters and, and them as well. Yeah, well, a female voice has always really has worked really well on the show, starting PJ Harvey mm. and then obviously Jenny from Savages as well. You know, that just works great for some reason, I suppose, because the female characters are such big parts of yeah. the show, you know. So, yeah, we've always tried to make that 
part of it. But it sounds weird to say it, but you know if an artist has got a peaky thing, yeah. you know. I know some artists yeah. just do, yeah. And then some it just wouldn't be right. It wouldn't, yeah. It wouldn't mean that they're not amazing at what they do, but it just wouldn't be the right fit. If only I didn't want the world, I wouldn't make you feel so sad. I'm sure my shame would be gone. Is he human to do? There's score in there as well. Like yeah. it's not all just mm-hmm. contemporary tracks. There is some original score in there. There has been all the way through, kind of woven in, you know, on stuff that sounds like bands, mm-hmm. but is actually original music. Can we talk a little bit about the score? Because you've had a number of composers that have worked on on mm-hmm. Peaky. I don't know how involved you've been in that, but Paul Hartnell from Orbital. Yeah, he worked on series two, I think it was, with Flood and PJ Harvey, and they sort of created that score together. The three of them working very closely, you know. I suppose Flood and Polly working on her songs and Paul doing more of the traditional score stuff, which he does amazingly well. That's the beauty of it is that it's multi-collaborative. People just think, oh, it's just banging tunes, but it's not, it's a lot more involved than that.
Have you ever thought about what music Tommy would listen to or what he'd be into? I actually think, I genuinely think this, I think he's a total Philistine. Like, I think he doesn't appreciate art, doesn't appreciate music. Like, I'd say, you know, that big house that he lives in, I'd say that every single piece of art and every single piece of furniture and everything was all chosen by Grace. <laughs> yeah. He likes to dress well. But I genuinely don't think that <laughs> art or music or poetry or novels are, are his thing. He just doesn't have time. He does use language brilliantly in mm -hmm. himself, but I, I just don't think that that's part of his world. I could be received and I could completely correct him <laughs> now, but that's what I think. So there's two instances where music have had an important impact on him within the narrative. Mm. So when Grace is singing in the pub. Yes. And then also in the third episode of this series, he has. A, I'm not going to give anything away here, by the way. He has a meeting with Jessie. Yes. And she's playing a record. Yeah. Bye Bye Blackbird by Gene Austin. So there's this lovely, and I'm thinking too much about it, weird thing with him, with women and music. Well, and it almost softens him. Yes, I think that's a sort of a, a larger point, I think, in terms of his vulnerability. Yeah. And the sort of the other side of Tommy, which we really never see, but people talk about him before he went to the first... World War and there yeah. was this, he laughed a lot and he worked with horses and he had a great sense of humour and so I think that side of him like you see it with his son mm. you know you see it with the younger brother uh, Finn you, you can see that it's there yeah and then if someone accesses it and if it's a sort of a non-verbal non-intellectual thing yeah through a piece of music yeah I think you're right you can find a chink in, in his armour yeah. I don't think he goes out of his way to kind of you know the way we would do to find a piece of music that you know consciously changes our yeah. mood or our emotion I think if it happens to and it stops him in his tracks then he'll accept it he's almost unaware of it uh, yes yeah. because like you say you think you know he's no kind of concept of art and no, I don't that, think so. that kind of thing I don't think so I like that Blackbird Blackbird singing the blues all day right outside my door Blackbird Blackbird why do you sit and say there's no sunshine in store all through the winter you hung around now i began to feel homeward bound blackbird blackbird gotta be on my way where there's sunshine galore pack up all my cares and woe here i go singing low bye bye blackbird where somebody waits for me, sugar sweet, and so is she. Bye bye, Blackbird. No one here can love and understand me. Oh, what hard luck stories they all hand me. Make my bed and light the light. I'll arrive late tonight, Blackbird. Bye. You started as a musician. Well, yeah, I had ambitions. <laughs> yeah. You got offered like a five-album deal or something, did you not? Yeah, yeah we did. Yeah, we did. Massive. We get offered it, but I mean, we never signed it or anything. <laughs> but to get that, you must have been pretty good. So you we know, were, don't we, sell yourself short. I'm, I'm not. I, I I always think about it though. It could be you know, in terms of sort of the what ifs, mm -hmm. and I think it's probably good for us as people and as friends that it didn't happen. Yeah. 
but you still play. Yeah, I, I, I do, don't do it as much as I should. When I do go back to it, I, f I realise how terrible I've become as a guitar player from not practising. But it, it, when I do, I realise how soothing it is and how calming it is. And, and it was the thing that sort of led me towards live performance, what I've always loved about live performance. Yeah. Which then sort of segued into theatre for me. But, you know, that there's nothing like the electricity you get in a room between a performer and audience. And you don't get it in film and television. And I miss it, so I think theatre has become the surrogate. You need your fix. Yeah. I wanted to ask about Disco Pigs because that was something that you did on the stage first yeah. and then went on to do, do the film version of it and um, you wrote and performed a track, So New. In the film, In the film, yeah. yeah. What were the conversations about you writing that? It's so long ago now. <laughs> um, I think what happened was that the director, Kirsten Sheridan, did a brilliant job on that film and I happened to be at the time, it was one of those times where I was finishing songs and actually writing songs and then, I don't know, we were probably back at someone's house late one night and the guitar went around and I played it and then she she didn't say anything to me and then she said, a week later or so she was like, what would you think about that song for the credits? And I went, well, I don't know, I mean, if you, if you, if you think it would be a good idea. And so I, I don't think the song was specifically written with that character mm -hmm. in mind. I think it just, she felt that it would be creatively appropriate or whatever yeah. to put it on the end. Stretch beside the pond you look long and lovely Like I remember you I was on my break, you had time to spare And so we tried to Talk, or maybe just sit films well i i kind of find i'm curious it's important i think to watch the finished product yeah once in a screen room and it'd be as sort of objectively as you can and then if it's something that you're reasonably proud of then it's really exciting to watch it with an audience yeah to see <laughs> because then you lose all subjectivity totally and you're, you're like oh my god this they're reacting to, to that moment or to that thing <laughs> yeah. that's really exciting for me if it's something you're you're proud of like none of us enjoy looking at ourselves or you know listening to ourselves or like it's all weird it's it's all odd and kind of to me it's always been innately awkward you know what i mean but it's interesting to see it through the prism of an audience's yeah. eyes you know dunkirk for example mm. just so powerful yeah and, and the way that that the score but the also soundscape of that is married together yeah. is just it's such an important part of that film you kind of you take that away and it does lose a lot of the power of that film not to take anything away from the performances and mm. the script or, or anything but it's such an intrinsic part oh of it's it. like a character in the film yeah. i think
Chris Nolan and Hans Zimmer have worked for so long together, so closely. From what I gather, you know, Hans Zimmer is working on the score based on the script that Chris sends him. You know, it's yeah. that early into the process they start. And also, I think, you know, with Dunkirk, the music starts at the beginning and doesn't let up till the end, with, with a few exceptions. And when it stops, you can just feel your heart. Take like, a breath, don't yeah. you? You're going to go, I can breathe again. Yeah, it's an astonishing use of music and sound to create tension, I think, mm-hmm. a match to picture. But, like, I found myself in it, you know, in like, it was in, I was in a complete state of tension physically yeah. after seeing it, you mm-hmm. know, and, and as people I spoke to about were in the same, but and a huge amount of that has to do with the score. I wanted to talk about Breakfast on Pluto okay. as well, if that's all right. I know, again, it's a long time ago. Oh, but, but you lobbied Neil to to make it, didn't you? You were kind of really, you really wanted to be him to make the film and to be part of it. Why so? Well, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Neil Jordan's work and of Pat McCabe, the author who wrote the book. And I read the book and I'd heard a rumour that Neil... <laughs> had a script and he produced the film I was in and, and then I um, yeah I just pestered him really and <laughs> uh, I, you know because I knew I was going to get too old to be able to convincingly play, play you know a trans character and like um, you get a sense every now and then you go right this is once in a lifetime mm-hmm. thing yeah. you know and I had a sense that that was one of those so I did an audition for him where I kind of got glammed up and did a reading for him and he taped it and yeah. I think he convinced him then you know so we went to it and made it and I have a lot of affection for that character yeah I enjoyed that experience a lot and the prep for it and kind of you know being really specific about things I read a really lovely bit about you talking about um, kind of practicing to get that high pitched mm. kind of you know performance or, or delivery and is it track of sand I think it's called oh yeah yeah and kind of been, you know, kind of practicing and being really kind of kind of regimented, but making sure you kind of nailed it and kind of got it right. Yeah, well, it was amazing because we had Gavin Friday acting in the film uh, opposite me as Kit's kind of lover, and then uh, Gavin is such a legendary musician. So we went in the studio and recorded that song. Yeah. Is it Nancy Sinatra? Is that the yeah. original? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I sung her part. That was just so much. Yeah. It was so much fun. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. Young woman, share your fire with me. 
short from which I haven't seen yet with Kevin from Boca Social Scene. Oh yes. The Water. Yes. Which is a silent film apart from Feist's name yeah. track at the end. But you're a big Broken Social Scene fan. Yeah. Well that was one of those examples of sort of, you know, if you kind of put it out in the ether that you're <laughs> yeah. a fan of someone and I turned up to some of their shows and I had met um, Kevin backstage and we got talking and I if I was in America I'd hook up with him and, and then I went to see Leslie's shows here in London and met her and yeah and then he fell in love with that track Telegraph cables and few can decipher who the message is from and deliver it quietly cause So he had this he had this kind of dream of making this little film where Leslie kind of was my mum mm-hmm. but that she was dead and he did it in a he I mean he's a pure director again obsessed with film and a really good actor as well he's actually about to do a play that he wrote in Canada and appear in it sort wow. of a musical yeah a musical it's kind of a musical I've read it it's a really stunning piece of work and he's um wow. yeah he's going to act in it and play in it because I saw them at Brixton maybe about four months ago when okay. they went across. Because the last time I saw them was their like farewell show at Reading right. Festival, however many years ago, and it was like proper like that emotional. And then getting the chance to see them, and they were all on there. Emily was on, and oh, it was proper. Oh, uh, they're 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 you they they kind of that euphoria oh. or positivity that they bring. I saw them in Manchester the night after the bombing. Oh wow! And everyone like there was lots of shows cancelled. Yeah. I called Kevin. I said, "Are you are you playing?" He said, "Yeah, we're playing, man. Are you coming?" I was like, "Yeah, I'm coming." So we came, and it was full. Yeah. And the first song, Johnny Mark came on stage with them and played, and it was just took the roof off the place. Um, it was amazing. The positivity. Yeah. Was just perfect. They were the perfect band for that sort of the state that people were in. So to start this show, to show you how we love your town, there's a man who I love dearly who's come out to play for you. He is your city, he is your legend. Please give it up for Mr. Johnny Marr.
congratulations on the party as well. I absolutely oh, yeah. loved it. I thought it was great. And, you know, kind of music's within that and within yeah. the narrative and stuff. And it's like watching a play, I think. Mm -hmm. It's so brilliantly done and black and white. And it's just so stylish and, and yeah. great. And with the music and that, I imagine it's kind of quite a, a difficult thing when the music's being played within and how they do that and the levels and all that kind of thing mm -hmm. and making sure that... That it works? Yeah. Well, Sally Potter's so, so talented and music has always been intrinsic to her work. Yeah. And so those songs that, that you see in the film, she had picked them, they weren't sort of random or on the day, she had picked them to enhance the mood and, and obviously the storytelling. So, everybody, it seems that we are expecting not one, not two, but three babies. Wow. People. Small people. Congratulations. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Was that a boast or a, a cry for help, Martha? I couldn't quite tell from your tone of voice. The miracle of conception. Shut up, Godfrey. Listen, I'm going to propose a toast to my oldest, dearest, and most loyal friend who has achieved a rare thing, which is why we're all here this evening, in case anyone forgot. Babies, excuse me, Jenny, Martha, but babies get born every day in extremely large numbers to the point of endangering the planet and all our futures. It's not every day, however, that one of us becomes a minister in your entirely rotten and useless opposition party. Fuck you, April. Though, of course, you're right. The only thing that she wrote, you know, I remember because we shot that film in two weeks, it was like wow. super fast. But I remember towards the end, that scene where Tim Spall is like lying on the ground and we don't know why she's going to make it. And my character's running up and putting all these records. She had written that scene the day before or something. And then she very quickly decided on all the pieces of music and they were so wrong. <laughs> Many of them. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's brilliantly weird juxtaposition of what's happening on screen and then the score that keeps changing you know like those really annoying people that won't let you finish a song on the right yeah, part you know yeah. what I mean so um, yeah that's just again the power of it and yeah. how smart she is and in, in insightful in how music can change and affect you and, and abruptly alter how you're supposed to be feeling yeah. in the scene like you say it's a kind of complete tonal shift yeah. and it's, it's so clever yeah have you had any worked with anyone who's played music on set yeah, a few times, um, a few times, and it and can work yeah. really well. I mean, for setting an atmosphere, but then again, you have to do a silent version yeah. to get the dialogue. Mm -hmm. I think we did that in the party, actually, where we played the tunes all the way through the yeah. scenes, which also helps in terms of sort of where you want to be emotionally, but also in terms of how you're, how loud you're pitching your, you know, because at yeah, a party, yeah, yeah. We, we, people are generally shouting at each other <laughs> yeah. without knowing it, and, yeah. and but actors tend to sort of quietly so it's good to have a sense of how loud it's going to be in post-production but also just in terms of creating mood it can be very useful
music for characters. Yeah. Do you? Oh, amazing. But again, it's more of a mood thing and a yeah. more of a like people always say to me, well, what song would you pick for so and so? And I, I, I say, I don't really know. It's more of the energy or the atmosphere, mm-hmm. or the temperature of the scene and the characters. So I might have a playlist or I might have a particular album. And also, like if you, you know, if there's a big emotional place that you need to get to, and you're on a very crowded, noisy set, and there's lots of stuff happening, and you just need to get away. And the best and quickest way to access some emotion is through music, really. Did you do that for Sunshine? I did a bit, yeah. The isolation of that, I kind of imagine yeah. to try and get in that headspace. And yeah, and Danny Boyle is a huge music fan as well. <laughs> yeah. He uses music so exquisitely in his films, and we would have a lot of conversations about music. Particularly the end of that film, I remember when he kind of has this, the character has this kind of communion with the sun. We were trying to find the most outrageously emotional piece of music <laughs> yeah. because it, it, that, that would fit in the end it was a score it was a score I think that he put on it that was John Murphy with Underworld wasn't it yeah Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Real pleasure to chat to you and I can't wait for the rest of this series of Pikiets. And there is going to be more, isn't there? Oh yeah, I mean there's definitely five and then... The musical I hear from Stephen. Well, (laughs) it's such an outrageous idea that it might actually work, you know? Not with me. (laughs) I'll wait and uh, wait for the confirmation of that on Stephen then. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Thank you.
One of the many brilliant tunes to feature in Peaky Blinders, that's I Think I Smell a Rat by the White Stripes, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Killian Murphy. A huge thanks to Killian for taking the time to talk to us. I hope you'll forgive us for digging up a couple of examples of him singing. The latest outing for the Peaky Blinders is currently airing on the BBC in the UK, with previous seasons available via various platforms depending where you are in the world. There's a full track list for this show, available via edithbowman.com, which is also the place to subscribe to the podcast and catch up with all of our previous episodes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do take a few moments to rate us on iTunes if you can. Next up, any Star Wars fans out there? Good. We'll be joined by Ryan Johnson, director of The Last Jedi. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.